0: tonight as we come together here, we come into a place that is sacred. This is sacred ground. This is a sacred space, not just geographically, but because of the nature of the day that we are celebrating. This is the day we celebrate the reality of the story of the great work of God in His death for us in order to produce the space for His resurrection. The challenge, though, that the trouble, though, is that this space is not only sacred but very, very familiar to us. See, we we know this space well. Considering the audience, you probably had nothing you heard tonight in the stories read that you had not heard before, nothing that you did not yet know. Yes, it was good to hear it again, but it is very, very familiar with you, and so because it is so familiar. It will not naturally produce the emotional response and emotional experience that it might have done the very first time you experienced it. This is the nature of us human beings. It's the way we're wired. When we discover something for the very first time, when we encounter a brand new paradigm of some kind, a new thought, when we see something for the first time, maybe the ocean for the first time, maybe a sunset for the first time, when we can perceive something for the first time, it naturally sparks in us, moves in us, produces in us an emotional experience and response. And that emotional and experience and response is what moves our heart and soul and then brings us to a place where that produces joy, or that produces awe, or that produces a space of wonder. And in this particular context of the story of God, when we experience that as new, it produces a space for worship. But for us, because we are so familiar, that is going to be challenging. So, How do we go back to connecting with this in such a brand new way that it invokes in us the emotional experience and response that will lead us to those things we so desperately need to continue to experience so that we would know the magnitude of this? Intellectually, we get it. Jesus came, He died, He rose. That's awesome. But how do we feel it again? Well, to do that, we must go back. We must go back to when this was unfamiliar, when this was not revealed for centuries and for, for millennia, where, where this was not commonplace, where, where perhaps it had not even yet been discovered. We need to go back to the very men and women that walked the ground as it was unfolding, and we need to place ourselves in their story, and we need to linger there so that we could experience this brand new once again. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. We are gonna go back. We're gonna pick up the story, this very real, very dramatic story, right at the point where everything seemed to be unraveling for the disciples. You see, the disciples had been following Jesus for quite a while now, for almost three years. And on that travel, a crowd had been developing because Jesus, when he came to this planet, had declared himself Messiah. And in the journey had proven that over and over and over again. And so the people knew that Jesus in every way best fit the realities of the prophecy of the rescuer who had come and set them free. And when he entered into Jerusalem at what we know as the triumphal entry, it was extraordinarily exciting because it was the collision between the Passover, the Messiah, and the prophecies. And they knew when you triangulate those three things, something big is about to happen. Jesus had also proven to them that he seemed immune to all of the efforts of the religious power players and the political realities and strategists in Rome, because every time they tried to trick him or get him or arrest him, he just seemed to divert it. He just seemed to be in a place where they couldn't afford it. They couldn't, they couldn't step into it, or when they tried, he would just disappear. And so they they realized though there had been many redeemers in their journey, uh, the Maccabees had been a great example, and many since and many before, who had gathered a crowd and had faced against the great Roman Empire and had been silenced quickly because of their violent ways. Jesus seemed to do it utterly differently. He seemed to speak with such power and act with such supernatural reality that no one could stand against Him. He wasn't violent. He was powerful. He was life-giving. He brought freedom and light. So you can imagine how excited they must have been. We are going to step into the story, though, on the morning after His arrest, early, early in the morning. The disciples are very confused. They had just spent a great evening over dinner with Him. They did not realize it was the Last Supper. And He has been arrested. They were in the garden when it happened. The the priests had come, the, the, the religious power players had come, the Sanhedrin had sent their soldiers And they had arrested Jesus and taken Him. The disciples were afraid. Some of them didn't know, should they go? Should they stay? Should they hide? Where is this going to go? Peter and John traveled with Jesus. Uh, At a distance, Peter and in the mix, John, uh, right to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they were there, and they realized when they were there, as we do through the revelation, that things were very hot. This crowd was a mob, and they were looking for blood. And and the reality of the religious power... that was utilized in a corrupt way, that was shaping the hearts of a fickle crowd became obvious, and they knew if this went badly, this could go very badly for Jesus and very badly for them. All of their hopes and dreams were hanging in the balance. It was not a good place to be. Now, during this night, we are privy to a piece of information that the disciples were not, the crowds that followed Jesus were not. Now, we are told in the Scriptures of a story about a man named Pontius Pilate and his wife. Pontius Pilate was the reigning leader in Jerusalem for Rome, and it was his job to keep the peace, and it was a difficult thing to do when you have so much turmoil, but if he did not keep the peace, then the powers in Rome would remove him from Jerusalem, and he would remove his, uh, he would lose his position, and that was not strategic politically. And so, Pontius Pilate uh, was the ultimate end, the buck stops here guy, where permission had to be granted if you wanted to kill someone as famous as Jesus. And so, we know that Jesus would have to end up in front of Pontius Pilate, and God had already been at work. See, his wife had had a dream about this man, Jesus, and the dream was so intense that she went to her husband, Pontius Pilate, and said to him, do not mess with this guy. Do not have anything to do with this man. Just let it go. When they bring him to you, do not play in this playground. It was almost as as though God was preparing Pontius Pilate to be a space in which Jesus would be stopped from execution. Pontius Pilate had felt a heaviness about this, and so we knew coming into this that Pontius Pilate might be the perfect solution to a problem brewing that the disciples were confused about. Well, exactly what we thought would happen happened. Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate did not want to grant permission for His execution, and so Pontius Pilate came up with a fantastic idea. It almost seems to be one given to Him of God so that we could produce the space into which Jesus would be set free from this insanity and we would see him fulfill the prophecies of rescuing his people from the Roman Empire. A stage is set, a stage with a story unfolding on it that oftentimes I think you and I, in our journey from the arrest through the trial to the crucifixion and the resurrection, oftentimes fix our focus on the wrong spot. Not the wrong one maybe, but we miss the stage itself. We're so captivated by the fickle nature of the crowd around the stage and the political powers that are using their corruption to, to move the crowd and the political strategists on the stage trying to move everything around so that they will win that we miss the two people standing on the stage and the significance of this moment. This story, this story perhaps more than any other up to now, demonstrates the work that God actually came to do and for you and I to experience this story fully, I want you to watch this video. Take a look.
1: We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man, he's a thug, and he's a crook. He deserves the chains, and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus? What has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? What do you want, Barabbas? Yeah, give us Barabbas.
2: People say, give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform. Welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is. But all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. And God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the heavenly father.
0: At first glance, when we look at the story of Barabbas and Jesus on the stage, we might assume, as we rightly would if we were just observing, that the reason Jesus remained on this stage and Barabbas walked off the stage was because of the religious powerful and their ability to use the religious institution to shape the crowds to do what they want. We, we might assume that it was the fickle nature of the crowds that allowed for this injustice to occur. We might assume that it was the political strategies of people like Pontius Pilate that were navigating what would be best for them instead of what was just and right that affected this. And if we thought that, rightly so, we would see this as one of the gravest injustices in this entire story. We would look at this and go, "This is unbelievable—that a, a good man like Jesus would be left on a stage condemned, while a bad man like Barabbas is set free." But, but what if the reason this story on this stage is unfolding has nothing to do with political strategy, or the religious powerful, or the fickle crowds? What if, in fact, this moment on this stage is an intentional act where God chooses to stay in a place where He doesn't have to be. See, God has moved the hearts and minds of far more powerful men than these, has He not? He has moved the hearts and minds of pharaohs, of entire nations. Surely he could move Pontius Pilate any way he wanted. Surely he could eliminate the the, the religious powerful. Surely he could make sure the crowd did not shout these things. But he doesn't. He stands silently on this stage while Barabbas is set free. And it starts dawning on us that maybe what keeps Jesus on this stage is not everything happening around him. Maybe what keeps Jesus on this stage is Barabbas. The fact that across from him stands a man condemned, rightly so, for the terrible things he has done. And Jesus knows that if he walks off this stage, Barabbas stays on it. But if he stays on it, Barabbas walks free. See, what we begin to realize is it is Barabbas that keeps Jesus on the stage. But more, through this little moment, through Barabbas on this stage, he shouts to all of humanity, God does, and says, this isn't about Barabbas only. I stand on this stage I stay on this stage. I let Barabbas off this stage. Because if I don't stay on this stage, you stay on this stage. You stay on this stage. Because what we come to realize is that we all stand condemned on this stage. And it is Jesus who stood on this stage and stayed on this stage because we were condemned. And so suddenly it dawns dawns on us the unthinkable an extraordinary thought. It is our condemnation that leaves Jesus on this stage. It is our condemnation that produces this stage in the first place. If we were not condemned, Jesus would not need to be on this stage. This injustice is on us, See, it is not our fault that Jesus is condemned because we were in the crowd, though we could easily have been. It is not our fault that Jesus is condemned because we are uh, the religious powerful, though we could easily be. It is not our fault because we are like Rome, though we could easily be. It is our fault that He's on the stage because we are condemned. And the condemnation that he faces, the consequences of, those, of, those con, of that condemnation is absolutely dire. Because this is where the rest of the story goes. The, the story we go to quickly because we pass by the stage. Because in some way I think we know how uncomfortable the stage is, what it says about us. See, what we come to realize is that the consequences of this stage ends up being everything else that happens in the story. Do you realize that if this stage didn't happen the way it did, Jesus would not be beaten, would not be crucified, would not die, and would not have to go through all that suffering. Jesus would walk off the stage free. When we look at the story, it is actually this stage, this moment, that produces the rest of the story, the rest of the suffering, the rest of the death. And that is dire. Not only does Jesus die a horrid physical death on a cross, that is but a shadow of what's actually happening, isn't it? Because here's what we know. Here's what we discover in Scripture through Revelation. See, our God exists in community. He is community in of Himself So we call that His triunity. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously as one. He does what we cannot. He embodies community. We exist as individuals, and when we are together, we are in community. But God is in His essence community, and so He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you were to take the Father and the Son and you were to separate them, you would essentially be taking God and separating Him from Himself. You know what happens when you take a human being and separate a human being from itself? It is very violent and very bad and it leads to death. When you see someone separated from themselves, you even say those words and you just can imagine how horrid that is. And that is exactly what God would walk through now as a consequence of this stage, standing here and letting Barabbas go free while he stands condemned. He would allow the unthinkable that the sin that produced death and the death that produces in us condemnation he would open himself to that and allow that sin and death to come and to do to him what should be done to us. This is what he did. Jesus stands on this stage and becomes sin because we had become sin and chosen sin. He stands on this stage and becomes death because we We're dead in our sin. He stands on the stage and becomes broken because we were broken. He stands on the stage and is condemned because we were condemned. We are responsible for this stage. And it is our need for rescue that caused him to stand firm in silence and watch Barabbas walk off. So what must we do here in this sacred space, in this place where we've come to reconnect to the realities and the magnitude of the story unfolding? Well, I'll tell you, before we dare enter into what's coming on Sunday, before we walk into the resurrection and the redemption and the renewal that we know is coming because we know the story, we must stop first. We must dare, you and I to walk slowly toward this stage. Tonight, we must dare to leave here and go linger in our bed as we fall asleep and walk slowly to this stage. In fact, no, we should walk up onto this stage. We should dare to walk right up to Barabbas, a violent man, an angry man, a thug, a, a rebellious man, a defiant man. And we should step into his shoes. We should slip our hands into his shackles. We should feel momentarily the violence in him, his disdain for this other man on the stage, his hatred toward him, his his ignorance of him. Because we should not forget that the Bible tells us very clearly we did not pursue Jesus. He pursued us When He came, the Bible says, when the light came into the world, the darkness hated the light and it ran from it. That's you and me. When we stood on the stage, we stood in the same space as Barabbas, as ignorant about Jesus as Barabbas was, as violent toward Him as Barabbas might have been. And we stand there in those shackles just momentarily, not because we are still bound, but because we must remember that this is where we began, condemned to death. And Jesus stood and said these words to us, let him go free, let her go free, I will take their place, I will pay their price. And as we stand there, momentarily condemned again, we stand here so that we will remember that the only reason we are free is because he stayed here. Our freedom, this verse, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, only exists for us because He stood on this stage and stayed. It is Barabbas' freedom that is our freedom. And as we linger there, As we stand in the awe of our rescue, may we also stand in the grief of our part in it. May we grieve the fact that because we chose sin, He had to choose condemnation. Because we chose sin, He had to choose death. Because we chose sin, He had to be broken. This is Good Friday. Good because it gives us everything we will ever want or need. But Friday, in all of the realities that come, with the price that had to be paid because we chose sin. Let's rest here until Sunday. Pray with me. God, we come into this space, stand by this stage step onto it and stand in the shoes of Barabbas, not because we are condemned or because we want to feel once again what it feels like to be (laughs) condemned, but because we want to remember. We want to remember the magnitude of our part in your suffering, our part in your death, our part in your condemnation, that we would not forget that you stayed on this stage because We needed you to, that you had full power over the political leaders, the religious leaders, and the fickle crowd, but you let them be so that we might be free. Help us, Spirit of God, I beg you to stay here this night, to stay here momentarily throughout the day tomorrow so that we might walk into Sunday ready to experience fully the gift of your redemption. We love you. We thank you. We grieve for you. We are sorry for what we have done and grateful for what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.